0: I just want to uh, point out in your bulletin, ministry uh, to children. It says the song is "Jesus Loves Me," in hy- hymn of preparation, "My Jesus, I Love You." <laughs> and uh, we, I didn't really think about that till just now, but that is the perfect way that we are to operate in the Christian life, knowing that Jesus loves us. My Jesus, I love you. And uh, this morning, I want to talk about uh, God's love languages. There's a well-known marriage book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. How many of you have heard of this? Okay, a good, a good amount of you. How many know your love language? You guys are out there? Okay, a good amount. All right. Uh, Chapman says there's five love, love languages, physical touch, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, and acts of service. And the idea being that each person has a, a primary language that they, they speak, um, and, and that if your spouse or a friend or a significant other can learn what language you speak, then... Uh, more harmony can take place because you can show that person love in the way that they most appreciate. Um, And so I want to begin by suggesting that God loves us in every one of these ways, in every way that we need and more. His Spirit is in us. He is closer than our very breath. He always has quality time for us. He has spoken the most powerful words of affirmation you need that you are beloved daughter or son of God. He loves you with an everlasting love. He has blessed you. He has given you every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And he has given you the greatest act of service known to humankind. What greater love could he have than to give you his life and to bring you back to God? And so because He loves us in this way, we desire to respond to this good news and to love him in return. And the passage we read this morning tells us of the great commandment, the greatest commandments, to love God with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength. Now, sometimes people try to, you know, discern, you know, are there subtle differences in these categories between heart, soul, mind, and strength? And there may be, but the general point is that everything that we are, all of who we are, is a response of love to God. And so in this covenant relationship we have with God like a good spouse or friend, we ought to consider what really pleases God. What could I do to show God love back? What is His love language? Can I? How can I show love? And I just want to show you a couple of verses that talk about this up on the screen for you. First, Thessalonians four: We instructed you how to live in order to please God as in our living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And from Ephesians five ten. Simply find out what pleases the Lord. We want to search out what pleases God. How can I love Him? How can I show Him love? And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 12. We've been journeying through Mark together. And as a way to express for God in obedience to the great commandment, I want to consider five love languages of God. Five things that really please Him. Now this is certainly not an exhaustive list. Not proclaiming I'm the Gary Chapman for, for God. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm doing up here. Uh, but as we read Mark 12, we're, we're going to look at five things that please the Lord. Um, and the first is humble submission. Humble submission. God loves humility. He loves humility. He hates pride, and he loves when we're humble, and He loves when we humbly submit ourselves to others. And we get a really interesting passage here in verse 13. The first situation we encounter in this story is a trap set by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, Now remember, these are two groups who should have nothing to do with each other. The Pharisees being a religious renewal movement uh, in Judaism. The Herodians are the political supporters of the immoral King Herod. But their common enemy is Jesus. And in verse 14, they give him flattery which they don't really mean, but it's actually true of what they say about Jesus. But the reality is we know, Mark has already told us, they want to kill Jesus. But because he's still quite popular, they need to find a way to turn the people against him. And so they ask the loaded question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Whether Jesus says yes or no, this is going to get him in trouble. See, the Jews hated the imperial tax. It was an annual tax that they had to pay to the Romans for their service. Um, they considered this foreign domination. Um, it was also, uh, the denarius coin that you used to pay it had the emperor Tiberius' picture on it, um, which to a Jew, that would be offensive enough. You know, they did um, one of the Ten Commandments, not having raven images. Uh, but furthermore, on this coin, it said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, it said, high priest. The Romans could not have done anything more offensive to the Jew at this point. It's the most idolatrous, blasphemous coin uh, that you could think of. And so, they're saying basically, should we use this idolatrous, blasphemous coin to support a godless government that's designed to oppress people? Do you want us to pay this? And if Jesus says, yeah, you should pay this tax, Well, he's lost total popularity with all the people. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay this tax, of course not. The Herodians, they're off to tell King Herod and charge him with treason. Do you see? They have designed like the most perfect trap to get Jesus to say something horrible. But Jesus is so wise. He asked them for denarius. And I think it's really notable that they have one on them. Jesus doesn't seem to have one, and they're hypocritical. They're willing to use this. They're willing to carry around this blasphemous coin and use it for commerce. So they're okay with using Caesar's system, using Caesar's money. And Jesus asks, "Well, whose image is this? Whose inscription?" "Well, Caesar's," they replied. And then Jesus says that famous statement we know: "Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's." Says they were amazed. And this, is, this is a brilliant statement, and it humbles us totally. It totally humbles us. Yes, submit to Caesar's system, but submit your whole life to God. This is Caesar's money. If it has his image on it, give it back to him. But if Caesar's image is owed to him, how much more we who are made in the image of God owe our very self, our entire being, back to God. So essentially, Jesus kind of sidesteps it, but he's saying, yes, pay the tax, but give God your all first, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Jesus' teaching here became the seed that kind of flowered into the church's teachings on these matters. Um, and when I saw this passage in Mark 12, part of me said, oh no, I'm walking into the same trap that Jesus is in. I'm in a terrible situation right now. Um, and so part of me would rather just skip over this and not talk about this, but let me assure you I have, I have no agenda here other than to honor the teaching of my, Lord Jesus, of my Lord Jesus Christ. It's my only agenda. Jesus taught that giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, and he also exemplified this. He told Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who sent him to the cross, he said to him in John 19, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Jesus taught and modeled that even through very ungodly authorities, God is somehow still working out His purposes through these offices, and therefore we should be humbly submissive. This is why Peter said in 1 Peter 2, and I want you to see this on the screen, uh, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Who is the Lord? Jesus. Submit yourselves for Jesus' sake to every human authority whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those to, who do right. Notice, it's for the Lord's sake. It's for Jesus' sake, for love of him, for honor of him, and especially in imitation of him because we know this is what he taught us. This is, we know this is what he modeled for us. And we know that the church knew of some exceptions, you know, obeying God over man, and certainly we, we know that there is a place to, to advocate for justice and change in society. But interestingly, every time this comes up in the Bible, the church never gives exceptions. It's not like I, like I, feel, the, I feel the need to give you all the caveats so that I don't get into a trap with you. But there, there's, there's never given the caveat when this is given. They expected this, the church expected this to be the norm that governed Christians' lives. Pun intended. They wanted to govern their lives. And we might, we might wonder, how could, how could Jesus teach this? How could he teach this knowing authorities he was under were ungodly and that authority gets abused? I mean, we have to remember that Jesus, he knew this intimately. He told people, marinate on this, he told people to pay taxes to the very government that ended up killing him. He said to the man that was sending him to the cross, you wouldn't have authority unless it were given to you from above. Isn't that astounding? And I would suggest to you, it's because of how much sin there is in the world. It's because of the very abuse of authority that concerns us that we actually need the systems of authority in the world. That ideally, end up checking the people who abuse it, hold them accountable, and bring them to justice. You know, one of the worst times in in the biblical history was the time of the judges, and you remember what they said? Everyone did just what was right in their own eyes. And it was one of the worst times in biblical history. Just let everyone do what they think is best. And God knows anarchy leads to chaos, more injustice, more sin, more people taking advantage. And so God knows that this sinful world, us sinful people, we need the accountability of authority. It can be good for us. Society and all of its brokenness in general will do better under authority. Therefore, Christians, we should honor that in the order order of society in which we live, even as we might work for positive change. Children will, in general, do best under the authority of their parents and should honor them. Christians will do best under the authority and guidance of the church. And the Bible teaches us to submit to one another and also to godly leadership. Hebrews 13 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pastors also, do best under authority. I want to be under the authority of our denomination, of the ministerium, of of the code of ethics, of my superintendent, Danny Martinez. I want to have multiple levels of accountability in my life for my own good. I want to show up to those monthly covenant pastor's meetings because it keeps me in relationship and connection and under the guidance of godly leaders. And so all of us need to be ultimately under the authority of Jesus, give to God what is God's, we're under God's authority, and we're under the authority of Jesus as the head of the church, and we're also under the authority of the Bible, that this is the Word of God. We say that this is the for per- 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 faith, doctrine, and conduct. Now, later on in this passage, Jesus pointed out to the, to the teachers of the law in Mark 12, uh, in verses 38 through 39, you can just briefly look at that. But he talks about their susceptibility to pride. And we're all susceptible to pride and rebellion and self-deception. And the Bible teaches that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do we have a spirit of humble submission? God loves when we are humble and when we submit to those around us. When we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, when we give to God what is God's. So that's the first. God loves our humble submission. Also, God, second love language of God is obedience to his word. 1 John 5.3 simply says this, This is love for God, to keep his commands. That's pretty simple. Easily said, not easily done, right? Um, obedience, I think, this is one of God's primary love languages. It's related to giving God what is God's. If he is my maker, if he is the creator of this whole universe, if he is my king, and I owe him obedience. I owe him my very self. And simply, the great commandment was a way of summarizing the 10. You know, the first four, one through four, summarizing my supreme love for God and five through 10, my love for my neighbor. So in order to obey God's commands, we have to know what he's asking us to do. And in Mark 12, verse 24, after a debate with the Sadducees about the resurrection, it says in verse 24, Jesus replied, are you not an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? In other words, we can be an heir when we, when we don't know or when we misinterpret the Bible and the will of God. And so if we want to show God our love for Him because He loves us so much, let's, let's joyfully study and learn of His Word and His will so that we can discern His good, His pleasing, His perfect will, as Paul says in Romans 12. But more important than discerning God's will and His Word is doing it. As James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. I mean, I know that... My wife really likes it when I clean around the house and I take out the trash. I don't need any more studies about her will on the matter, all right? I don't need to parse out the English words of what she pleases her, all right? I just need to do it. (laughs) Sometimes quicker than I sometimes do. Um, But we need the same with God. And so I want to ask you, what, what do you know that God would be pleased with that, that, we're, that, we're, hes- that we're hesitating about right now? What, what do we know that God would be pleased with, that God is calling us to be obedient and that we're, we're kind of we're maybe waiting around on? Let's show him we love him by obeying his word. A third love language of God that we see in this passage is trust in his power. The other errors the Sadducees were guilty of was, was they didn't believe in the power of God. Um, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so they, that, that seemed to be rooted, Jesus indicated, in, in, a, in a lack of belief in the power of God to raise the dead. And God is pleased when we trust in his power. I mean, Jesus was always amazed, and lo- amazed by this. He Remember, he rejoiced in, uh, rejoiced in the faith of that Syrophoenician woman who came to him and begged that her demon-possessed daughter would be healed. And we know that Jesus was amazed when, when the Roman centurion came to him and he just said, you know what, just, you don't even you don't have to come with me. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Oh, and Jesus was amazed. He loves it when we trust in his power. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if you read Hebrews 11, a lot of the faith in Hebrews is future-oriented, It was speaking to a lot of people who did not see the promises of God realized in their life or in their generation. A lot of people who might have carried around disappointment with God. God, you didn't bring me into the promised land. Abraham, he never got to see the fulfillment of the promises of God. But yet by faith, they kept trusting in his promises. They kept trusting in his power, even if they seemed like the world was totally bleak and broken around them and God wasn't hearing them, they both still believed that God would one day make all things right when he restores the new heavens and the new earth. And as Christians, we believe in the resurrection and the life everlasting. And so we trust that no matter how dark our world is right now, no matter what's going on in our lives, we have to keep trusting that God will one day put all things right. Keep trusting in his power. Keep trusting in his goodness. A fourth love language of God we see in this chapter is love of neighbors expressed in deeds. Love of neighbors expressed in deeds. We know that Jesus linked loving God with loving people. There is an indissolvable union between these two. Do you want to show God you love him? Love the people around you. It's honestly that simple. But when we hear the word love, we often think of maybe an inner feeling or a romantic feeling, a way that we feel about somebody. Uh, But it's imperative that love on the inside gets expressed in deeds on the outside. 1 John 3 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or deeds but with actions and in truth. You know, I want to suggest to us that perhaps we don't love others as much as we could because we forget what it feels like to be in deep need. Yes, we have our personal struggles and problems, but many of us, we have all that we need and more. And so we have to think about, we have to actually spend the time to put ourselves in the shoes of others and and think about what would it feel like to not have enough food? What would it feel like to not be able to get clean water? What would it be like to be in prison for the gospel? What would it be like to be very sick and lonely? What would it be like to be living in Ukraine right now? What would it look like to be a child who needs a godly father figure or mother figure in their life and doesn't have one? We have to ponder these things, friends. And then we have to ask what would we want someone to do if that was me? And then it's when we move to the action, when we do what someone would, that we would want someone to do for us, that's when we live out the greatest commandment. And if we all did this, if we all put this into practice, can you see how this would change the world? I mean, this is why I believe Jesus is the greatest teacher ever. It just makes sense of life. If I could love God with all that I am, And I could truly love my neighbor as myself. Oh, how much better the world would be. Amen? The last love language I want to point out is sacrificial generosity. We know that scripture teaches this. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And it says in Hebrews 13, Do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. He loves this. He loves when we are cheerfully and sacrificially generous. And this is the last story in Mark 12. In verse 41, if you want to jump down there, says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, watched the crowd putting in the money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, in everything she had to live on. You know, the amount that we give doesn't matter as much to God as the heart in which we do it. And if we are willing to sacrifice something to sacrifice something, something that that hurts us, something that that would restrict what we might be able to do for ourselves because that shows that we're putting somebody else above ourselves. That's sacrificial generosity. And God is pleased with such sacrifices. So, brothers and sisters, as as I open this, I want to say what Paul said in Thessalonians. I I live you to urge lives that please the Lord your God, as many of you are already doing, but I urge you to do it more and more. And these are some of God's love languages. Humble submission to God and others. Obedience to His word. Trust in His power. Love of neighbor expressed in deeds. And sacrificial generosity. As I move into closing this morning, I want you to consider how Jesus fulfilled all five of those also for your sake. Even though he is the king of kings, he submitted to earthly kings who sent him to the cross. He humbly obeyed his heavenly father. He trusted in God's power for everything, only doing as he saw father doing. He loved people concretely, compassionately, with deeds and generosity. He left the riches of heaven, sacrificially giving his life, shedding his blood, letting people break his body so that you could be redeemed and reunited to God. And he did this knowing that you cannot even perfectly love him in the way that would most please him. He did this knowing that we would not be able to live up to all this. But He loves us anyway, and He sent His Spirit to help us. He did this while we were yet sinners. Finally, and I want you to hear these words from Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of His servant Amen.